This was a study looking at vasodilatory hypotension. This article is going to change my management. Does greater exposure to vasopressors lead to harm? We know the more vasopressor that we use, the more cardiac dysrhythmic events occur. The primary and secondary outcomes were comparable. Certainly does have some limitations for me. Well, welcome back to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine, and this is Mike Winters here from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. So thankful that you're joining us for this podcast, and so thankful you are on the front lines continuing to battle this COVID-19 pandemic. We are in this all together. We are in this with you and couldn't be more proud to stand with you in taking care of all of these patients. Let me bring in here Peter W., Rob Rodriguez, and John Greenwood, my amazing CCPEM hosts. Gentlemen, how are you doing this month? Doing well. Things have finally slowed down in New Orleans. Looks like we're on a nice plateau. We stood up three additional ICU and we're able to close one of those two and limit the number of patients that are coming in, both from a critical care standpoint and an ED standpoint. So social distancing has actually worked in New Orleans so far. Yeah, here on the West Coast, we definitely have not been hit as hard as other regions. Our early decision to socially distance has had a pretty clear impact on our hospitals and the community. We have steady numbers. We have not had an acute surge. We just have steady numbers and much lower than places like New York or New Orleans, Peter. Philadelphia is doing well hanging in there. We're still around 30 to 40 admissions a day with approximately 10 to 20 ICU admissions per day. But with that being said, our discharge rates have started to go up as well. So we're about 30 to 40 patients being discharged from the hospital now. So we're netting close to being even, which is a good thing. I think overall, our critical care services and emergency services have done an outstanding job in the city of Philadelphia. And in Maryland here, as we record this on Sunday, April 19th, our numbers are continuing to rise, but very similar to the three of you, we haven't seen an overwhelming surge like our colleagues in New York have. We, across our system, are seeing many patients come in, and it's interesting to note that I think overall we're consistent with many other areas of the country and that our overall ED volume is lower. However, depending on the hospital within our system, some of those hospitals certainly are seeing a lot more COVID-positive patients than others. So it's interesting to see that distribution around Maryland. But overall, you know, our numbers were continuing to weather the COVID storm as it stands now here in inner city Baltimore. Well, for this podcast, we are going to take a little bit of a break from COVID. We understand that many of you are drinking from the fire hose that is COVID-19, not only in clinical shifts, taking care of patients, trying to get as much clinical information as this disease evolves, along with, I'm sure, a litany of Zoom meetings, discussions, calls, and texts. And what we're going to do this podcast is we're going to talk about some vasopressors in the critically ill patient. And that is based on a study that was just published online within the last two months in JAMA titled The Effect of Reduced Exposure to Vasopressors on 90-Day Mortality in Older Critically Ill Patients with Vasodilatory Hypotension. This was the 65 trial. So John, 
give us a little background on this trial and overall what the whole concept is or what the authors set out to do. Yeah, absolutely, Mike. So this was a study looking at vasodilatory hypotension, which I think in the emergency department, we commonly see with sepsis. So if we're going to frame it in that way, we can definitely apply this to the sepsis patient population. And patients with septic shock often require vasopressors to achieve traditional MAP goal of 65. And they're used to avoid hypotension as well as avoid bad outcomes such as acute kidney injury, myocardial infarction, and with persistent hypotension leading to death. However, vasopressors can reduce blood flow due to over-vasoconstriction and can adversely affect some of these things we're trying to reverse, which are some of these cardiac, metabolic, and even immune function. There's been some research showing that vasopressors definitely reduce body's immune function. So blood pressure is used to guide the administration of these vasopressors, and surviving sepsis guidelines recommend a MAP target of 65 millimeters of mercury or greater with a higher target for older patients with chronic hypertension. And 2016 surviving sepsis campaign update acknowledged that there was a lack of evidence for targeting higher MAP values overall in most patients. And I think this comes within the context of two relatively recent trials, the sepsis-SPAM trial, as well as the ovation trial that suggested an association of increased pressure presser exposure to target higher MAP values with death in patients older than 65. So particularly those with chronic hypertension should we be targeting a higher blood pressure goal. So this begs the question, does greater exposure to vasopressors lead to harm in a specific population being Emma. the older patient Emma. population that we see coming in through emergency department. Outstanding introduction, John. My thanks, which gets into Peter. I'm going to turn things to you. Tell us the objective of the 65 trial and what the study was all about. Thank you, Mike. The objective of this study was to determine whether reducing exposure to vasopressors through permissive hypotension that's mean arterial pressures 60 to 65 millimeters of mercury, actually reduces 90-day mortality in ICU patients 65 years of age and older, those with vasodilatory hypotension. The study was a multicenter, pragmatic, randomized trial. It involved 65 ICUs in the United Kingdom. Their inclusion criteria was adults aged 65 years and older, they were admitted to a participating ICU within six hours of a vasopressor infusion that was started for vasodilatory hypotension. That's a hypotension that we see most commonly with sepsis. They received adequate fluid resuscitation, and they were expected to be on pressors for at least six-plus hours. Now, the exclusion criteria, contraindications to permissive hypotension, was there an imminent risk of death, were vasopressors used for non-vasodilatory shock reasons, and then lastly, exclusion, treatment for brain or spinal cord injury. So what was the intervention? The intervention in the permissive hypotension group, vasopressors were administered to a target mean arterial pressure of 60 to 65 millimeters of mercury. They had trial-specific prompts on infusion pumps and in medical notes for higher mean arterial pressure alarms. The usual care group, the other group, received vasopressors at the discretion of the treating clinicians. 
the choice of vasopressor and other interventions were left to the treating clinician, whether it was norepinephrine, epinephrine, vasopressin, phenylephrine, dopamine, terlipressin, and metaraminol. They could all be used. They were allowed within the study. The adherence was defined as appropriate reduction or discontinuation of vasopressor when the mean arterial pressure was higher than the upper limit of 65 millimeters of mercury. The deviation was defined by failure to reduce or discontinue vasopressors when the mean arterial pressure remained greater than 65 millimeters of mercury for three or more consecutive hours. So what were the outcomes? Our primary outcome was a 90-day all-cause mortality for the study. The secondary outcome, there were a few. First was mortality at ICU discharge. Another was mortality at discharge from acute care hospital. Another was duration of survival to longest available follow-up. Another was duration of respiratory or renal support during ICU length of stay. Another was days alive and free of respiratory and renal support within the first 28 days Another was the duration of ICU length of stay, and then cognitive decline in survivors at 90 days and one year, and then lastly, health-related quality of life in survivors at 90 days and one year. That includes the secondary outcomes. Great job, Peter. I really like the objective and then great detail on the study itself. Now, Rob, your turn. I'm going to turn to you. What were the results of the 65 trial? Yeah, Mike. So they enrolled 2,598 patients in this trial. There were 1,291 assigned to permissive hypotension and 1,307 assigned to usual care. After dropouts and exclusions, they wound up with 2,463 patients included in their analysis of the primary outcome. 1221 in the permissive hypotension group and 1242 in the usual care group. And the groups were well matched with the exception of a proportion of patients dependent on assistance for ADLs. There was slightly higher patients that had dependency of assistance in their ADLs in the permissive hypotension group. There were 34.4% of those that met that criteria compared to 30.9% in the usual care group. In terms of the MAP, immediately prior to randomization, they were evenly matched. The permissive hypotension group, their MAP was 69.9 millimeters of mercury compared to the usual care group of 71.1 millimeters of mercury. And then in terms of the clinical management, the permissive hypotension group wound up with lower exposure to vasopressors as expected. They had vasopressors for a median of 33 hours versus 38 hours in the usual care group. They had a lower median total dose of vasopressors, 17.7 milligrams versus 26.5 milligrams in the usual care group. And the mean and peak MAP levels were also lower in the permissive hypotension group. The mean MAPs were 66.7 versus 72.6, and the peak MAPs were 83 versus 92. And there was no differences in fluid balance, urine output, or use of inotropes between the two groups. With regards to the primary outcome of 90-day all-cause mortality, the permissive hypotension group had a mortality of 41%, and the usual care group had a mortality rate of 43.8%. The absolute difference was not significant. It was negative 2.85% with a 95% confidence interval that was from negative 7 to 1. 
So that was not significant in that manner. In terms of secondary outcomes, there was no difference in ICU mortality or mortality at acute care hospital discharge. There was no difference in the mean duration of ICU length of stay, hospital length of stay, days alive, or days free from respiratory and renal support to day 28. There was no difference in cognitive decline and health-related scores at 90 days and at a year. So again, the primary and secondary outcomes were comparable between both groups. In terms of adverse events, there was no difference. Permissive hypotension had 6.2% adverse events and usual care had 5.8%, but that was not significant. However, when you looked at the subgroup analysis, the mortality reduction was more pronounced in the permissive hypotension group of patients who were chronically hypertensive. So in other words, those elderly patients that had chronic hypertension, they had a lower 90-day mortality in the permissive hypotension group. It was 38.2% versus 44.3% with an adjusted odds ratio of 0.67. Thanks, Rob. That was great in terms of the study results and surprising findings there. John, I'm circling back to you. Like any study that we've talked about for the last many years here on CCPEM, I got to envision that there's probably some limitations. Help us out with those. Sure. So I think there's definitely some study limitations and probably some practical limitations as well in the interpretation of the study. First of all, all these interventions, this is an unblinded trial. So certainly there's risk of bias whenever the clinicians are not blinded to the intervention. The 90-day mortality in the usual care group was higher actually than anticipated. And non-consent withdrawals were slightly higher than anticipated in the sample size calculation. And certainly the attributed mortality was not adjudicated here, which can raise some questions. I think in terms of interpretation of this, all these patients were in the ICU. So this did not apply to patients who were maybe on the borderline admitted to the floor. These were watched very carefully. And then certainly my one question, and as I read this last month and thinking out loud too, is MAP is just a singular number. Certainly, as we think about the components of that, the diastolic blood pressure is awfully important, and a super low diastolic pressure may also make someone decide to treat with vasopressors rather than the mean number itself. And there's a lot of data to be gathered from your blood pressure that, such as perfusion pressure and everything else. So I'm taking this Within consideration, I think it's a good trial, and it definitely sheds some light onto MAP targets in elderly patients, but certainly does have some limitations for me. I like that. Thanks, John. Now, you had already alluded to your interpretation, incorporation of this evidence. I'm going to turn back to Peter and Rob for their thoughts, but overall what the authors concluded from the 65 trial is that in older patients, so those above age 65, who you have on pressors for vasodilatory hypotension, most commonly sepsis, using this lower MAP target, this permissive hypotension, comparing it to usual care really didn't change 90-day all-cause mortality. Having said that, there weren't adverse events using a lower MAP target in these older patients and maybe some hypothesis-generating subgroup analysis that might suggest or might not a possible benefit with a lower MAP target in patients who have chronic hypertension. So, Peter, 
How do you incorporate the 65 trial into your clinical practice in older patients on pressors for vasodilatory hypotension? Well, I would tell you, I used to push really hard elderly patients who were chronically hypertensive to kind of shift their blood pressure, maybe 65 to 70 in those patients. Again, thinking right shifting their perfusion curve. And so this tends to make me do that. And the reason it tends to make me not do that is not just their evidence here, but we know the more vasopressor that we use, the more cardiac dysrhythmic events occur, the more problems we have controlling blood sugar as well and insulin resistance issues. So I'm not anxious to use too much vasopressor. And so anything that gives me the excuse not to use too much vasopressor, then I'm going to support that. And so in regards to this, if you're older than 65, I'm really not pushing your mean arterial blood pressure goals. Great, great interpretation, great thoughts. Rob, how about you? Yeah, I'm right there with Peter. I completely agree about his interpretation. And the way that I kind of look at it is rather than a negatively framed trial, in other words, their conclusion was that permissive hypotension did not result in a statistically significant reduction in 90-day mortality. I would frame it as Well, it did not result in increased mortality, and it did not result in increased adverse events. And so whenever you're delivering something like pressors or, let's say, high levels of oxygen, for that matter, I kind of look at it as you should show that decreased delivery of that pressor is not harmful. So I kind of view it in the same way that Peter does. I think that this article is going to change my management in that I'm going to tolerate lower pressures in elderly patients and certainly in the chronically hypertensive patient in whom I used to kind of target a higher pressure. So again, I view it as it's okay not to push these patients, not to push such high levels of vasopressors in these patients. I agree with you both. I really like your interpretations. John? Any final thoughts? I know you started this off. I want to circle back and see if you have anything else you wanted to add. Sure. You know, the one thing I'd encourage our listeners to do when they take a look at this article, so this was a trial of targeting a specific blood pressure. If you look at what they achieved and you look at the two groups as they separate, the low target group, the blood pressure was actually closer to 65 and not 60. And the usual group was actually a lot higher, closer to 70, 75. So I almost wonder if this is just showing an efficacy of the number of 65 in just all comers, heterogeneous patients, but it's worth taking a look at. I think it's reasonable based on the results to target a map of 60, but I don't think for me, this isn't definitive just yet. It's hard to target such small differences in numbers, I think, at the end of the day at the bedside, but certainly it's reasonable to not freak out I think, at a map of 62 after this trial came out. Would it also be fair to say that, as Peter alluded to in patients, that we maybe prior to this would drive a little higher, especially if they were poorly controlled chronic hypertensives, that it's okay to target around 65? Yeah, I think that's absolutely reasonable. Well, gentlemen, thanks so much for taking us through the 65 trial. It's going to be one of those key articles that I think at year's end, amidst everything else that we're going to circle back as an important article here relatively early 
in 2020. And to all of our listeners, certainly, thanks for allowing us to take a brief pause from COVID-19 related topics and get back to some critical care and resuscitation with respect to vasopressors in critically ill patients. I wanna just take a moment here and once again, thank all of you for the care that you're doing, the countless hours that you're putting in on the front line. Couldn't be more proud to stand with you, whether that be in the emergency department, in the ICU, any facet of medicine. I think over my 20 years, I've told several folks that I can't remember a time when so many folks have banded together as truly all together as one team in terms of combating COVID-19. So my thanks to all of you for all the work you're doing. Peter, Rob, and John, any final thoughts? I wanted to send a shout out to those who are going from places like UCSF and going to New York to help out. I want to give a shout out to Clement Ye and Tomas Diaz from our department who went to Columbia Presbyterian this week. And yeah, just all of you who are in much more heavily hit areas, I salute you and hang in there. Yeah, I would just say that this whole pandemic has turned everybody's lives upside down. And so for all of you, hang in there. We still have some changes. If it hasn't come to you yet, it will. And hopefully not to the degree that it has to New York or New Orleans or some of the other harder hit areas. So good luck to you guys and keep the faith. No, I don't think I have much more to add. I think, if anything, it can be hard during these times to keep the humanism, the humanistic part of what we do, particularly if you're working clinically on a long stretch. Anything you can do to bring our patients back to whether it's seeing family or calling family members, don't get caught up too much in that. Remember why we're doing what we're doing. You got everyone's doing a phenomenal job and you know you should be proud. Couldn't have ended this in a better way. Thanks to everybody for tuning in on CCPM. For this podcast, we look forward to talking to all of you on our next podcast. Bye for now.